என்ன கவி பாடினாலும் உந்தன் மனம் இறங்கவில்லை என்ன கவி பாடினாலும் உந்தன் மனம் இறங்கவில்லை இன்னும் என்ன சோதனையா முருகா என்ன கவி பாடினாலும் உந்தன் மனம் இறங்கவில்லை இன்னும் என்ன சோதனையா முருகா என்ன கவி பாடினாலும் அன்னையும் அறியவில்லை அன்னையும் அறியவில்லை தந்தையோ நினைப்பதில்லை அன்னையும் அறியவில்லை தந்தையோ நினைப்பதில்லை மாமியோ பார்ப்பதில்லை மாமனோ கேட்பதில்லை மாமியோ பார்ப்பதில்லை மாமனோ கேட்பதில்லை என்ன கவி பாடினாலும் உந்தன் மனம் இறங்கவில்லை இன்னும் என்ன சோதனையா முருகா என்ன கவி பாடினாலும் அக்ஷரலட்சம் தந்த அந்த போஜராஜனில்லை அக்ஷரலட்சம் தந்த அந்த போஜராஜனில்லை பச்சமுடனே கழித்து பரிசளிக்க யாருமில்லை அக்ஷரலட்சம் தந்த அந்த போஜராஜனில்லை பட்சமுடனே கழித்து பரிசளிக்க யாருமில்லை இக்ஷணத்தில் நீயன்றி எனக்கோர் துணையில்லை இக்ஷணத்தில் நீயன்றி எனக்கோர் துணையில்லை சத்தியமே இனிமேல் உன்னை நான் விடுவதில்லை சத்தியமே இனிமேல் உன்னை நான் விடுவதில்லை என்ன கவி பாடினாலும் உந்தன் மனம் இறங்கவில்லை இன்னும் என்ன சோதனையா முருகா என்ன கவி பாடினாலும் உந்தன் மனம் இறங்கவில்லை என்ன கவி பாடினாலும் பாடினாலும் சனாவது சனௌனக்து சீரியம் கரவாவஹை தேஜஸ்வினாவதீத்தமஸ்துமாவிஷாவஹை ஓஷா
Thank you for imparting wisdom on how to cross the sorrow. I was wondering if there is a Vedantic approach on overcoming boredom. <laughs> it isn't rage, sorrow or fear, but it is still formidable. We think boredom is an emotion, but it is not really an emotion. It is a precursor to various emotions. Or I would like to think of it as a state where all the other emotions are yet to be recognized. Maybe there is a restlessness. Maybe there is a feeling of ill at ease which is again precursor to anger, sorrow, anxiety, fear. So we call it boredom. A kind of a intolerance of the status quo perhaps, is that boredom? Or is it, can it also be described as an apathy? Apathy means not interested in the present circumstances. Disinterest, lack of interest in the present circumstances. These are the ways we can describe this phenomenon no matter which way we describe it it, uh, it is an indicator that that something is not correct with myself with what I am doing and it is a significator of something within, something that needs to change. Either what I am doing needs to change or the attitude with which I am doing whatever I am doing need to change, needs to change. More often it's the latter than the former because how many things will I go on changing? And Sometimes boredom is a precursor of fear. For example, studying Vedanta, sometimes people get bored. It's not that one is bored. The manifestation of boredom is akin to a, a fear that is making its way out of the psyche, waiting to be recognized. And what is this fear? Oh, I don't know about this Vedanta. Will it really help? Will it take me away from everything else? These kinds of fears. Does it work? 
And so not recognizing this uncertainty, it's easier and more socially acceptable to say what? This is boring. I'm bold. And so that's what I think boredom has to be looked at. That's how it has to be looked at. It has to be seen as a precursor of either fear or sorrow or a sense of ill-being, dis-ease with what is and with my own swadharma. It, it expresses itself in action. My own dharma, whatever I am supposed to do, I don't like what I am supposed to do. So it's also an expression of what? Raga and Dvesha. So all these things are there and it's difficult to generally pinpoint what is going on. So in each situation we have to take it on a case by case basis. We see this in children. If they don't like what they are doing, they say what? This is boring. <laughs> That's how we know. Karma is a method of accountability. Is karma also there to help us want to learn knowledge of the self? Sure, we can take that way. We can certainly take it that way. Because one can say, I am here in this situation studying Vedanta. How? Why? I am here because of karma. What kind of karma? Well, if you are enjoying the retreat, then it is good karma. <laughs> if you are not enjoying the retreat, that means you have already gone home. Okay? So, then it is not so good karma. So, usually we say, it is punya. Paunaf punyena shravanam kuryat. There is a adage. Paunaf punyena. Punya means from the punya before, from previous lives, the punya that you bring leads you to the teaching situation. And so, so therefore, yes, in that sense, the previous karma can lead one to the study of Vedanta. So if you show your horoscope to a Vedanta person, they will look at the fifth house. Fifth house is the house of previous punya. And there, certain, the presence of certain planets, certain planets being in exaltation in the fifth house, or certain planets being in their own house in the fifth house is an indicator that this particular punya of studying Vedanta will fructify. That is, so we can say. So karma also in that sense. Karma meaning here result of actions. But karma is also meaning what? Action. So even the actions that I am having now, let's say I do something that I am not very proud of and there is a lot of regret, 
there is pain, there is sorrow because I have caused sorrow to another and I am not able to live with it. And usually when I find Vedanta in these kinds of situations, then also it becomes very, very wonderful. So karma leads me to Vedanta either way. Karma phala leads me to Vedanta, punya leads me to Vedanta, sometimes even papa experiencing difficulties, experiencing loss, pain, sorrow, health issues, etc. immediately lead me where? To Vedanta. So, in, in, in either case, whether we take it as a result of action or the action itself, so karma has a big say in the study, in bringing one to this study. This is an interesting one. Are there any political implications of Vedanta? And then the person uh, explains what they are saying. Aside from issues directly impacting Hindus, temple politics, conversion, etc., which you may also want to speak on, Hint, hint. Uh, are there any broader political implications regarding, for example, taxation, war, immigration, conservatism, liberalism, socialism, <laughs> ism, ism, etc. So, you know, this is just like asking what is the Vedantic perspective on all these things. That's, that's basically what this question I think is saying. Really speaking, this is about understanding that all that is here is you. And the you that is described in the Upanishads. We saw, first it was Bhuma Lakshana, Bhuma Adesha, and then, what else? Ahankara Adesha. That which Bhuma, that Bhuma is who? You. This is what it's all about. So the whole Vedanta Shastra is really about dropping the jagat or letting the jagat drop. When you hear the thud, that means you have moksha. <laughs> Just joking, okay? Yeah. Don't take it seriously. Next satsang it will come. <laughs> Last retreat you said. <laughs> I've been hearing some thudding noises. Go get a checkup for the head. That's all. <laughs> it's just for fun. Letting the jagat drop as something to be to be pondered over. We wax eloquent about this series of names and forms, and we live in them, and we 
keep on writing diatribes of them because there is a certain investment in that. It goes the other way too. The more I engage in it, the greater it becomes. The greater it becomes the, a reality. A reality that I am trying, frankly, to transcend. Why am I transcending it? I am transcending it because that is, that is what the vision is. Because I am transcending it, I am striving to transcend it because I am sick of these divisions whether they are political, economic, sociological, whatever it is. I'm sick of these divisions. These divisions are causing wounds. And it was, I think, war was also mentioned. Yes, yeah, precisely, yeah. War is mentioned, immigration, all these things. Points of view, conservatism, liberalism, socialism, this ism, that ism, masculinism, feminism, all these things. Sometimes they cause wounds, like war. Sometimes I put myself into a box. First I, I draw some pictures on the box and paint the box, name the box, put some cushions, line the box with some cushions and then I sit in the box and then I feel all confined. <laughs> Let me out. This is what is called identity politics. This is exactly what it is. I name the rest of the world and I give a name to myself and certain other people like me. We have a support group. And so what is this support group? How to end all support groups? That's my support group. <laughs> What have I done here? I've made a box. First it feels safe. I feel cocooned from all those inimical forces that are out there. So I think, out there to get me. They are all standing against me. I don't agree with you. I don't agree with that one. And this one doesn't agree with me. We are all different. I am, what is that? Conservative. The other one is liberal. Third one is capitalist. Fourth one is socialist. The fifth one is no-ist. And that becomes another ist. Yeah. No-ism. <laughs> and so, when I name myself, whatever name I give myself, and when I put myself in a box, First, the box is a place of safety. And mind you, for a while we may need it. We may need to claim this identity. But like all other identities, the identity is to be claimed, reveled in, cleaned up, and outgrown. Every identity is like that. You can't permanently be something. Because whatever you say you permanently are, that itself is impermanent. And it will be suffocating. It will be stifling. Because it does not take into account your own being that is striving 
to just be one with the sky and to not have any names, any forms, any defining features. You want to be that which is free. You want to be that which is all-pervasive. You want to expand. And here the box is making you contracted. And as though this was not enough, somebody puts a lid on the box. First you name yourself, and then other people are eager to add to that name, and they drive in some nails <laughs> from the top. And then I find that I'm confined. Secondly, I find that I'm at a war with everything else. I have cornered myself. This is what, this is why all these isms don't work. Ultimately, they don't work. They could be a working title for something. It's okay. If somebody wants to brand themselves as this or that, anarchist, let's say, fine. Break a few things, fine. And then after that, that, that identity is necessarily outgrown. The problem is we have been searching and going from one finite identity to another endlessly. And that is why all these things are there. The heart wants the identity of identities. That identity in which all identities rest is what? Is the one without name, without form, that which is so expanded that it accommodates everything, even warring identities it accommodates and transcends. This seven-year-old boy who Nachiketa knew this. He goes to Lord Yama and asks, Anyatra dharmat, anyatra adharmat, anyatra asmat, kritat, akritat, anyatra bhutat chabhavyacha, yat pashyasi, tad vada. Beautiful. I mean, this is really, uh, that this mantra that I just quoted is an answer to this question. Anyatra dharmat. He tells Lord Yama, don't teach me the run-of-the-mill. This is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. We live in the, we li live in the politics of duality. We live our life through dyads. We need to overcome this. He knows this. At age seven or eight, however small, he is depicted as a small boy. He knows this. And so he says, I don't want this. Get me out of this oppositional consciousness. Either this or that. I am this or I am that. So, anyatra dharmat, other than dharma and anyatra adharmat, other than adharma. What is there? Tell me. Because why? We think dharma is everything. I have to be dharmic. And then adharma bad, dharma good. These are all 
certain categories. The truth transcends categories. That's why it is said that a person of knowledge, even if the person becomes a um, matraha, pitraha, even if the person commits matricide or patricide, not a single hair on their head is turned. So, anyatra asmat kritat akritat. Don't tell me anything that is cause. Don't tell me anything that is effect. Another dyad. Cause and effect. Good and bad. Righteous and wrong. Uh, right and wrong. All that is important. But it is on a certain level. These, uh, the, the more we indulge in it, the, firm, the more firmly we are in the world of this uh, strife. Duality. And then finally he says, so don't tell me cause and effect, don't tell me what is stuck in wrong and right, good and bad. Then finally don't tell me that which is stuck in time, past, present, future. I want to know that which transcends everything. What a beautifully worded question. Because that is what the heart wants. The heart does not want yet one more category which will be a buzzword for a little while. And people are, can be very, very clever with terminologies and words. So it may say, this, this is what trends on, on things like X, formerly called Twitter. Okay. <laughs> so this is what, these are the things that trend, new thing. And then it will, it will become viral. For how long? Few days. Oh, there is this new category. Everybody has to belong here and it, it, it is wonderful. And what is this category? No category. <laughs> no category itself becomes a category, then where, what are we going to do? This is good to just create a buzz and to create some kind of a fashion statement and to feel like I'm part of a trend. But this is all on the world of Vyavahara. The Mundaka Upanishad says, Dve Vidye Veditavye. Two kinds of knowledges must be known. Parachaiva Aparacha. One is called Apara and the other is called what? Para. This all, what we are seeing in this question, is part of Aparavidya, relative, not absolute. But the relative is important to know. If you tell somebody who's not had, who's not had taken any position uh, on any of these things that this person mentions, they have not really had the um, the frame of mind to belong to any group. They have not had the time to express their position on war and peace and so many other things. And if you say, oh, all that should be transcended, the person will not be ready. Only after dabbling in all this, the maturity comes to be able to let go of that. And the more I let go, the more I can be one with that nameless, formless Aham, Atma, Bhuman. 
this is what this is what the purport of vedanta is so then the next question naturally arises does that mean that a person who is seriously interested in vedanta must not look into causes that are hindu and must not look into uh, anything you know the whatever one sees in the world forget hindu but any kind of an injustice social ecological economic injustice that one sees in in the world should i be aloof should i not go there at all that's not the point if you feel if one feels equipped to do something if one feels called to help help but getting stuck in that identity completely to the detriment of this vision is not is not useful is vipassana or mindful meditation of any use from a vedanta point of view if so what it is if not why not vedanta doesn't throw away anything everything is useful each and everything is useful nothing is useless whatever you do is useful as long as you do it mindfully <laughs> as long as you do it with the awareness for self growth then it becomes useful meditation is useful mindfulness is useful mindfulness comes from this vedanta only it's not any different in buddhism it was even more highlighted that's all they took this one part and highlighted it and have brought it out beautifully they took two things and expanded upon it very well one is this mindful amness and the other one is compassion those two things they it has been uh, taken and uh, elaborated upon very nicely but here this is of course this is helpful what is vipassana watching the mind naturally it is helpful it helps us know the ways of the mind so that one can um, one can have a say over the mind when we say vedas are eternal what does this exactly mean the meaning is eternal the specific letters are eternal how can this be true in light of a historical anthropological analysis which would seek to explain the origin of vedas being composed in some specific time and place example the battle of something 10 kings in the rigveda must have occurred at some point in time sure but that's not the point the point in time is not the point because here we are not the least bit interested in the historicity of the primary texts vedas upanishads because that will take you i'm not saying that is useless analysis but that will take you on a different tangent than 
the purpose that we have come here. That will make one into an academic. But we are not concerned or interested in academentia. Okay? <laughs> we are not interested in that. We could care less how old the Bhagavad Gita is. Because the birthday we recently celebrated on December 23rd was her birthday. Oh, how old did she turn? We stopped counting after 5,000. <laughs> What's the point? There are many analyses which posit the Rigveda as the oldest and then like this they have all these... They have all these parameters and uh, conditions and if uh, you meet the conditions about the, the, the certain expressions used, etc. and then they have tried to look at it historically. But that's not the point. That's a, not the best use to make of the Veda. Because if I... You know, when something is being given whose message is going to lead me to see that I am timeless, why would I spend time giving it that, a certain time? Why would I try to encapsulate that body of knowledge in time which is promising to show me that I am timeless? Isn't that a waste of time? Isn't that kind of counterintuitive. That is one thing. Second, the Vedas is, are a body of knowledge and they were given to rishis in meditation. So even though we can say they were composed, they were not composed. The rishis were composed, yes. <laughs> they were not composed by the rishis, just like one would sit and compose some prose or poetry. It was given to them. Because the rishis that we are talking about had done a lot of inner homework of clarifying the mind and had sought and prayed for this knowledge and so they became the receptacles of the knowledge and from them we gained this knowledge. Because along with the rishis came the tradition, etc. And it is believed that the Vedas are as old as the Jagat. Is this verifiable? No, it's a belief. They are as old as the Jagat because when the Jagat came and Apparently, it's like the Vedas are an act of Ishwara's compassion, it is believed. Because when the Jagat came, it was understood how difficult it is to subsist in this terrible Jagat full of... Where is that other question? War. <laughs> War, immigration <laughs> and uh, conflict. Liberalism, conservatism, socialism. It's very difficult to live in all these things. Therefore, the Veda was given. And that is what makes it eternal because along with the duality, the means to transcend the duality is also right there. That is the beauty of looking at the Veda in this particular 
manner. And that is why we say Sanatana, it has enjoys a certain, the Vedas enjoy a certain perennial nityatvam, pravaha nityatvam, meaning each time the, each time the Jagat comes into being, the means for transcending the pain of the Jagat also are given. Swamiji said, Brahman is ease and consciousness. Everyone is consciousness. Why does Brahman allow free will to harm consciousness? Hmm. Everyone is consciousness. Brahman is consciousness. Why does Brahman allow free will to harm consciousness? We are making many assumptions here. We are assuming first of all that consciousness can be harmed. Can consciousness be harmed? No. That which cannot be harmed is called consciousness. Nainam chindanti shastrani, nainam dahati pavakaha, nainam kledayantyapaha, nashochayati marutaha, nashochayati marutaha. It cannot be dehydrated by the wind, wind damage. It cannot, it is not subject to water damage. This atma, this consciousness. It cannot be subject to be burnt by fire. We are talking of each and every element. It cannot be cut by the swords. Why? Because it is imperishable. It is not made of parts. It is not an object. It is the author of the five elements, so to speak, Therefore, it cannot come and it's of a different order of reality uh, uh, from the five elements. The five elements are belong to the empirical or the material order of reality and the Atma is that which is the absolute order of reality. So, those two orders of reality have nothing in common. It's like, just like how you cannot buy your dream house in the waking state with a dream lottery you won last night. <laughs> so if you go to the real estate person and say, I know I'm going to pay for the whole thing in cash. Oh, here have some tea, have some coffee, they're very interested in you. Because you're like a dream client. So how would you like to pay for it? <laughs> with my dream dollars. Dream on, darling, they will tell you, and slowly escort you out the door. So just like you cannot pay for the house in the waking state with the dream money that you won in the lottery, similarly here, the, the, uh, the, the empirical reality and the absolute reality have, the, have a similar kind of a relationship. And so too, 
in the same way the 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 empirical reality cannot hurt the absolute the absolute being myself you know even though somebody can come at me with a with with a knife or with uh, you know with some uh, uh, fire water whatever it is what will it hurt what will it, what can it destroy only the body not i it cannot and will not destroy the i the i is totally separate uh, so therefore uh, uh, so consciousness is never harmed okay and then and neither does brahman allow brahman he doesn't have volition free will why does brahman allow free will to harm consciousness first of all brahman and consciousness same one and the same from the individual standpoint we may use the word consciousness from the collective we say brahman so there is it's all one and the same and then secondly that being the case secondly we we cannot also say that uh, brahman allows there is no allowing because brahman is the most uninteresting thing there is yeah seriously it doesn't do anything how will you have your coffee Did you make this jagat? <laughs> no comment. It will not even say no comment. <laughs> Why do you allow so much suffering in the world? Say it doesn't do anything. It simply is. It it is. It is sentient, and it is all pervasive, limitless. limitlessness which is understood as the self evident i that is what brahman is but having said this i appreciate the spirit of this question we have looked into the semantics of the question let us look at the spirit of the question if brahman is consciousness then why does why does free will come in the way of knowing i am this consciousness that's one one understanding one interpretation of this question i don't know if it was intended by the author of this question or not but that is one uh, one meaning of this question that it delivers so we can see, we can see that if everyone is brahman and brahman is consciousness how come this free will comes in the way of knowing that and that's a very good question how come the free will comes in the way the free will comes in the way because the free will is not is is just a misnomer it's not really free how can you call it the free will if it is constantly enslaved by all the things in the universe and if it's running behind them is it free it is not free <laughs> free will is the, the expression free will is like the expression free lunch it's not there <laughs> it's simply not there 
and so therefore the will has to first of all be freed from the tentacles from being embroiled and enmeshed in various objects of the universe and that is a very big preparation for vedanta and once i withdraw yada samharate cha ayam kurmongani va sarvashah like a turtle withdrawing its limbs the person of knowledge withdraws at will from contact with the sensory objects especially when those sensory object contacts when one knows that it will just lead to sorrow in the beginning the indulgence seems very small oh i got it i'm going to enjoy this i'm going to experience this i'm going to interact with this object or these objects but then because of one's own insecurity and various addictions etc fears what happens is that you are not interacting with the objects what happens the objects have held you hostage you are gagged and bound and have one has become a servant to those objects objects sometimes include people also okay and so therefore this is the uh, this is uh, this is why sometimes it is difficult even though everybody is consciousness and everything is consciousness it's difficult to know that because the free will is under the spell of various objects so there is no time to extricate myself from them because i i have put a high premium of my own self definition vis-a-vis these objects and i have my own identity locked up in these objects as the possessor of the objects as being defined by these objects etc so as long as that is there brahman is what silent on the question brahman will not say come on study vedanta why because i am that brahman <laughs> i have to say i have to extricate myself and i have to say i want to study vedanta i want to know about consciousness how a sadhaka who is retired should spend time from early morning to late night on a typical day retired is fine but you must not be tired that's the thing <laughs> so if one is retired and is relatively healthy that means there is a lot of time for vedanta that is nice if that's what you want this is you know how to spend the time what is the ideal day my ideal day may not be your ideal day okay somebody did ask me swami ji what do you do the whole day you don't even come out of your room <laughs> so so my ideal day may not be your ideal day i'm assuming you are asking how to how to be more in this knowledge how to spend the time 
usefully. Usefully means what I think is usefully. That's why you're asking me that question. <laughs> this is how I'm assuming and I'm going to answer it. And so if strength is there and if time is there, it would be nice to replicate the, the timetable of the ashram even though one is not in the ashram. There's, there is a certain beauty to it. Because even the person that hates routine, hates the discipline, the body wants it. The mind thrives on it. And in the beginning there is just this like, oh, get me out of here. It feels like jail. Why am I here? What am I doing? This is wrong. But it's a cultivated appetite. You eat a little bit, you don't like it. Eat a little more. Uh, what is this? Why do people like it? You know, like this thing, blue cheese. I've never understood it. Oh. Cheese itself has fungus. And then blue cheese, what? Fungus upon fungus? I don't know, but anyhow. But some people like it. Maybe it was also a cultivated taste. Long ago, when I came to this country as a graduate student, and I was sharing a house with some people, and one of the flatmates got this blue cheese and kept it in a saucer, in a dish. And I saw it the next day and I said, oh, poor thing. <laughs> she had brought something rotten <laughs> from the market. Let me throw it and clean. I cleaned out the dish. <laughs> and the person was, oh my God, it was so expensive. <laughs> Even for rotting things, we have to pay so much. <laughs> Anyhow, so the thing is this, that there is a, you know, there is a, one may not like it, it's a cultivated uh, adaptation to the, uh, to this uh, routine. In the beginning, one doesn't like it. Still, you can have your own version of this routine. Routine means discipline. Discipline means, I tell this recalcitrant mind what to do, when to do, how to do. I have a say over the ways of this mind. I am the boss. When I tell myself that, the resistance becomes a little less. So wherever one is, one can have a routine which is similar to what it is like being in the ashram and which allows you time to have two to three hours a day of immersion into Vedanta. And let those three hours a day not be at the same time. I listen to classes online uh, on uh, what is that called? YouTube uh, from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. It will not happen. What will happen is nirvikalpa samadhi. <laughs> that's what will happen. Okay. So that's a setup. You 
can say okay i i'll do one class in the morning one in the afternoon one in the evening that will work or you can even pare it down and say i can do two per day because i'm assuming other things need to be done cooking is there cleaning is there shopping is there and maybe some socializing is there all this is there and so if i keep this kind of a routine that really really helps and the other thing we can do if one is retired is that whatever activity one does where one makes it conducive to the study of vedanta things for inner growth service oriented things all these things that also helps so one can prepare and then prepare the mind as well as one can study haha <laughs> what is the role of spouse in one spiritual journey <laughs> what fun the spouse is there to give you moksha quickly hang on tightly to him or her no seriously that's what happens the spouse is there to first of all to make you see that there are buttons you never thought you had and that they can be pushed and pushing them elicits the same reaction each time all these things are a lot of fun so then when one understands that there are all these buttons that are keeping on being pushed that means what the buttons need to be taken care of and only because of the spouse one knew that the buttons are there correct so what should we do to the spouse thank you <laughs> write a thank you note because of you i'm closer to finding out all the what is that you know triggers because of you i'm closer and closer to overcoming the triggers this is one way in which the spouse helps moksha regardless of whether the spouse is attending the classes or not we don't even have to think that that is immaterial the second way is that having a significant other in one's life enables there to you know one to grow exponentially quickly because i have to accommodate for one more person it's a very interesting situation where the person wants to overcome their own raga dveshas but then they have to deal with not only their raga dveshas but the raga dveshas of the spouse also those have to be accommodated those have to be validated to a certain extent 
And as Pujya Swamiji would say, you cannot say, it's all one, <laughs> it's all fine. There is no, we are all Brahman. So there is no need for me to do anything special for your birthday. You are free of birth and free of death. What birth? What birthday? That doesn't work. Why? <laughs> because it's just, uh, just like it's two different realities. It's two different realities. Because you're dealing with Brahman all right. But you're dealing with a complaining Brahman. Okay? What are you going to do? <laughs> you're going to, you're dealing with a discontented Brahman. A complaining Brahman. A Brahman that has a whole list of things that you have done. Okay? And another list of things you have not done. That you should have done. <laughs> a Brahman that keeps your omissions and commissions. <laughs> updated daily. How are you going to deal with this? It cannot be bypassed because it is here. Because even if it's bypassed, it will come a different time in a different way. It has to be dealt with. So one learns to be patient. One learns patience. And even though one is loath, to engage in the everyday. In fact, the beauty of Vedanta is expressed in this realm alone. Beauty of myself and my knowledge of Vedanta is expressed in the everyday, is lived in the everyday. I can't go sit somewhere in Paramarthika. Paramarthika is a cognitive shift in my head. It's not really a, you know, it's not really a shared reality. But the empirical reality is a shared reality. It is, it is how to, when I learn more and more, how to bring out the best in everyone, including myself, there is a sense of joy, a lightness of being, a celebratory feeling of accomplishment. And this accomplishment is not averse to Shravanam, to that which is gained by Shravanam, Mananam, Nididhyasanam. In fact, it's all one. And when the Brahman in your life stops complaining, <laughs> stops being discontented, uh, then that is itself a form of moksha something very beautiful. And that is why we have in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad the dialogue between the two sages who are they? Yagyamalkya and Maitreyi. Uddhyasyan Are Maitreyi he says in the beginning. Oh honey, I'm off. <laughs> I'm pushing off. <laughs> because you're supposed to take permission from your mother and your spouse for going on a life of sannyasa, for renunciation. So, in that spirit, he thinks, she will say, yeah, yeah, go, no problem. 
wasn't missing you till now won't miss you even after this <laughs> bye that's what he thought she would say but she surprises him she says wait a minute oh we and he waxes eloquent he says oh you've been a great wife you've been a great spouse i'm off to the forest and you will not want anything don't worry i have so many cattle even if people drove away a thousand they will not be missed i have this many cattle i have this much money i have this many people and they will all be just caring for you and you will not even need to lift a finger all you have to do is look around and the hired help will come in all directions saying what do you need what do you need what do you want how can i help so your life is going to be uber comfortable yeah very comfortable no problem at all and what does she say wait a minute all this money first of all why are you going in search of what atma okay all this money that you are leaving me will that help me get the atma she asks he being an honest person says no otherwise i won't be leaving it says no navittena na aasha asti amritatvasya this immortality after which the, which is my pursuit which i want to have i money will not lead you there money will not deny you that either that also he is very honest in telling it's not that oh i want moksha so i have to give up money or i have to have money neither your wife will money is not something going to deny you moksha money is not going to give you moksha money has nothing to do with moksha unless you have some kind of an obsessive compulsive relationship with it then we need to talk otherwise if you are being objective about money money will just give you come a comfortable life he tells her that yatha upakaranavatam jeevitam syat tatha te tava just like people with means live comfortably and they don't have to pinch every penny and look around what can i spend or not and similarly you also will have just a easy life and she says okay if this is not going to teach me if this is not going to get me what you are after then you need to postpone your plans permission denied <laughs> tell me first what this is all about and he has to sit right there transform himself from a husband to a teacher and he even though he's in the position of a teacher he teaches with so much love there is so much conjugal expression of love in the way the, the the teaching comes through and this is even beautifully brought out in the vartika acharya sureshwara wrote a, a, a vartika 
for this Upanishad. The Upanishad, as I have said before, is a lady of few words. She just says a few things and goes away. But the Vartika fills up all the blanks. Ukta Anukta Duruktanam. So that which has been said is unfolded. The Vartika's job is to unfold. And then Anukta, that which is not been said has to be filled in. Durukta, Durukta means not badly said, unclearly said, indistinctly said. That also has to be filled in. Ukta, Nukta, Durukta, Nam, Chinta, Yatra, Pravartate, Tam Vartikam, Ahuhu, Vartik. This is the definition of Vartika. It has to expand on whatever is there in the Upanishad. And he does it very beautifully. He expands on their conversations. And he waxes eloquent over Maitreyi's fittingness for knowledge. And he also spends quite a few verses describing Yagyamalkya's shock. Oh, my wife is interested in this? I thought she was just a coffee machine and up till now <laughs> I thought she was there just to give me this, that or the other. But she is interested in this knowledge and she has adhikaritvam. How is this possible? A few verses are very beautiful verses I must say are spent in, in his astonishment. But he really is like who am I talking with? I thought this was my trey. I took her for granted. I didn't really see her as a woman. I thought she's just a spouse. And so, not only she has a transformation of seeing the husband as a teacher, he also undergoes a transformation from seeing her as a spouse to a shishya. Very beautiful dialogue. And then they both live together and there is something very very telling and beautiful about this because in all you know he, by all reason he could have just left he could have said okay I don't have the time for this but one does what one least wants to do until it doesn't matter this is how it is even with sannyasa. One student asked Pujya Swamiji, when will I get sannyasa? When will I get sannyasa? When are you going to give me sannyasa? And Swamiji's answer was, when you no longer want it, <laughs> it will come. <laughs> Same thing here also. How long do I have to deal with the spouse? Until you stop asking that question. <laughs> that is what the answer is. Oh, this is again interesting. Yagyamalkya teaches Maitreyi that everything is dear to one for the sake of the self. What about things that are not dear to us? They are dear to us. No, no, no. Cockroaches are not dear to us. They become very dear when they are absent. Certain things are dear to us by their presence and proximity. Certain other things are dear to us because they are 
far away. <laughs> Either way they are dear to us because the human struggle and the strife is to keep pravritti and nivritti. Pravritti means going towards things and uh, that make my life comfortable and that, that I love to have. Nivritti being free of things that, that uh, I don't want around me. I understand the I, I understand I the Atman, but can you explain that the I is not separate from the rest and how it pervades everything? Sure. So, Vedanta 101. What is Vedanta 101? Atma, I. Anatma, not I. And what is not I? Everything else. Whatever I can look at, whatever I can pinpoint, whatever I can, whatever thing that I can uh, touch, taste, smell and see and hear, infer about, objectify in any way, not I. This is 101. We saw this even in the Bhuma Vidya. First we separate in order to then see the underlying unity. You have to separate because it is horribly mixed up. The I and the not I are mixed up all the time in very, very uh, interesting ways. Supposing I'm going for a walk, I see a person walking their dog. Nice dog, I say. The person says, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I'm not, the dog doesn't say thank you. <laughs> Person says thank you. Because there is an identification with the dog. There is the identification with what one is wearing. Nice t-shirt. T-shirt doesn't say thank you. The wearer of the t-shirt says what? Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, in this manner, this is this is exactly what uh, the mix-up looks like. First it is my spouse, my child, my house, then very quickly it becomes me spouse, me house, me child. Everything becomes an extension of me. The Atma and the Anatma get terribly entangled and so therefore in order to separate, in order to see that this is all not I, not I, not I, Vedanta 101 is all about the separation. But if we leave it at the level of separation, what happens? We have duality. We don't have unity. We have duality. We don't have oneness. And so for this oneness to be understood, what do we need to do? We have to see that that which we call anatma is non-separate from Atma. So, if I say, this is an object, and who is cognizing it? I, the subject. So, object, how is this object cognized? By the mind, by the thought. Crystal thought is, crystal is, crystal thought is, and crystal is objectified. 
But we know that everything is Brahman, everything is Atma. Crystal also is Atma. I am also Atma. I means the one who is endowed with the body, mind, sense complex. I am also Atma. Crystal is also Atma. Then what's the difference? One is manifest as that which is knowable, to be known. Gnaya Padartha. And then I am what? Jnata, knower. Between the Jnata, I, and the Gnaya, that which is to be known, there is what? There is a bridge. There has to be a bridge. Otherwise, how will I know this? And what is the bridge? Pair of eyes. Sight is the bridge. Sight is the Setu that joins the Jnata with the Gnaya. The Pramata with the Prameya. The known with the knower. The sight brings these two together. What is sight? Brahman. This is Brahman, sight is Brahman, I am Brahman. It's just Brahman which is free of attributes, which is free of names, which is free of all forms, is manifest as the object is simultaneously because it is limitless and it is free of time it simultaneously also manifest as the subject and yogapat simultaneously manifest as the bridge between the subject and the object all of them are brahman all of them uh, uh, are brahman brahman is not any one of them it just morphs and lends its presence and its sentiency to the subject, to the object, to the means of knowledge without becoming any one thing because it is limitless. It supports everything, lends its presence to everything without becoming any one thing. That's all. Yeah. Om Swasti Prajabhyav Paripalayantam Nyayena margena mahim mahishaha Bo brahmane nityam Loka samasta sukhino bhavantu Kale varshatu parjanyaha Prithivi sashyasha lini Desho yangsho bharahitaha Brahmana santu nirbhayaha Sarve bhavantu sukhinaha Sarve Santu Niramayaha Sarve Bhadrani Pashyantu Makaschit Dukha Bhag Bhavet Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya Mrityorma Amritangamaya Om Pur Namadav Pur Namidam Pur Nathpur Namudachyate Purnasya Purnamadagya Purnamivavashishyate Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Shri Gurubhyo Namaha Harihi Om